Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. It's the last Food Focus in March with Leighton Kling. I'm Trent Kling. We'll talk a little QSR industry with news from checkers and rallies, as well as a new beverage offering potentially at McDonald's. And we'll discuss more bad news from Pi 5. But we begin with OK Foods, one of the United States' largest chicken producers, as they've recalled nearly a million pounds of chicken due to customer complaints of metal objects in some of the company's packaged foods. To give you a little background about OK Foods, they're owned by Bachoco, who bought them in 2011. Bachoco is the leading poultry supplier in Mexico, so it stands to reason that the company is privately owned. OK Foods was founded in the early 1930s in the Arkansas and Oklahoma area. The company first sold livestock and poultry feed and then began to integrate its own protein business. They have operations throughout the South and states such as Arkansas, Georgia, and of course Oklahoma. OK Foods has four main divisions. They have an individually frozen chicken pieces division where they sell breasts, drumsticks, and thighs that are frozen. They have a seasoned division. They have a fully cooked division, prepared foods essentially, and this is the division that this recall has to do with. And then what are called deli wogs and that division. Wogs are unseasoned, uncooked, unbreaded, frozen whole chickens. Essentially what deli counters will often use at grocery stores for slices and that type of thing. Multiple different uses for the deli wogs. The company also has several QSR accounts or quick service restaurant accounts in the U.S. They also have military and industrial accounts as well as retail accounts. So, Leighton, why don't you tell us about this recall and who it affects? It affects a lot of people. It was mentioned that there was about five complaints that had first sparked a little bit of alert from OK Foods initially. According to the FSIS, which is the Food Safety and Inspection Service from the USDA, they reported on March 23rd that this recall was going to affect nearly 933,000 pounds of chicken, or as you said, close to a million pounds of chicken from this producer. And in particular, you mentioned they have a lot of plant locations throughout the southeast United States. This plant in particular came from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and it actually stemmed from a plant they may have bought just last year. So this was a plant, part of their acquisition process, this is actually the third acquisition over the last several years. And so you have to wonder if they did all the proper safety protocols and really looked this plant over before acquiring it. This was the fully cooked plant, so they would be making chickens, fully cooking them. And then in this particular instance, this was their breaded chicken line. So this was for those ready-to-eat meals that you see inside retail outlets, but the complaints stemmed from extraneous materials ended up being metal that were embedded within this cooked breaded chicken. These were portions you would typically see again in the company's ready-to-eat segment. You would see these in TV dinners and things of that nature. It seems as though the company has quickly identified the root cause of the problem, and they said, and I quote, after an internal investigation, the firm identified the affected product and determined that the objects in all the complaints came from the metal conveyor belting. And that was also part of a USDA statement. And that was honestly one of the good bright spots from this trend in that they were able to identify the issue very quickly and take care of it. 
types of issues like this are very serious. We talk about metal objects or other foreign debris inside breaded chicken breast. That could be very dangerous, especially for a small child. So they identified it in a very quick fashion. These chicken items that were affected were produced between December 19th of last year and March 7th of this year. So they put a quick stop to the production there and fixed the problem, or so it appears. Some of the brand names include Chickentopia, Farmington, and Spring River Farms. A total of 20 different products are said to be affected. And there's actually a PDF where you can see the specific packages, the specific banners for which they sell these products on the USDA's recall website. But overall, Trent, you look at the effects on the larger chicken industry, you see that it probably won't affect the chicken prices if we're looking at it from a macro perspective. Of course, the number one poultry producer in the U.S. is Tyson, so they are a little bit behind them. And according to the National Chicken Council, I found this very interesting, the demand for overall chicken consumption has gone up in the recent years, this despite prices falling. So while we have an increase in supply, there is also an increase in overall demand. And to put these numbers in perspective, the per capita demand for chicken in the United States overall is about 90 pounds per year. It's gone up in the last two years by about two pounds or so it's projected in 2017. But again, the larger effects remain to be seen, but as you can tell, the price per pound in the United States for chicken breasts have been fluctuating a little bit. That's correct. If you look at the price for boneless, skinless chicken breast, currently it's three nineteen a pound or $3.19 per pound, and that's as of February, I should say. In February of 2015, the same price was $3.51 a pound. If you look at fresh whole chickens, those have gone down as well by eight cents from $1.55 a pound to $1.47 per pound. All that said, beef prices have actually fallen by a higher percentage, up to 20% with ground chuck products. Overall, as you mentioned, Leighton, you may not see too much of a macro-level impact, although typically when we see recalls of any type of nature, normal supply and demand implications could mean, of course, that the price of ready-to-eat chicken products go up since these were the products that were affected specifically by this recall. And in theory, the price of all chicken products could go up, although this is unlikely, as in this theory, they would be substitutes for the breaded, ready-to-eat variety here that has been recalled. But as you mentioned, and this is something I wanted to touch on, the company is aware of the piece of equipment these chunks of metal were coming from. And again, it affected five different consumers that we know of. But oftentimes, you see a couple of different recalls in the industry. One is a foreign object recall, like what we have here, where there is metal or plastic or something like that in a product. And the businesses that you worry about long-term in terms of a recall hurting their viability in the future, they oftentimes have a more difficult time pinpointing the location of where those foreign objects are shedding off from. Here, it was very clear to them that it was a conveyor belt or the metal conveyor belting, and they were able to get the problem fixed. So that's the first thing that's in OK Foods' favor, despite the fact that they had to issue a recall. 
The second is that there appears not to be any foodborne pathogens associated with this recall. And those are actually the type of recalls that seem to be hurting businesses a little bit more. We've talked about recalls, particularly from Bluebell ice cream, during the course of the last two years. And those recalls seem to be hurting those businesses far greater than an equipment-based recall or a foreign object-based recall. And I'm kind of anxious. The last recall we talked about on this show was the recall from Sierra Nevada Brewery, and I'm anxious to see how that recall affected their sales and affected their bottom line during the course of the last quarter. But here at OK Foods, as we often do, we have to give them credit for immediately pulling the plug on this chicken line and the USDA, of course, getting that information out there to the rest of the industry leaders to let them know that, hey, there might be some ready-to-eat chicken out there that you may have to send back. Yeah, and one final aspect that we need to touch on that we really haven't when talking about recalls in the past, either it be a foodborne illness or otherwise, is the eroding of trust between the supplier here in OK Foods and the retail industry or the industrialized industry that actually use their products. You don't want this to happen multiple times because this could affect sales long term. And again, they're operating here under a number of different banners, a different number of brands. And so you really have to be confident that going forward, you're not going to be seeing these types of problems to really not hurt the sales of these products long term because the customer tends to think that it's the retailer's fault. They're told to bring back a recalled item to a particular retail, either it be Kroger or Walmart, and they tend to blame Walmart or Kroger for the quality control mechanisms that are in place when in fact they're actually using OK Foods as their supplier for these products. So it is important for everyone to be on the same page here. And again, it is a very good thing that this was actually solved in a very quick fashion. We see here that it was on March 21st, the problem was first discovered after OK Foods received those complaints. But overall, we see that this is a class one recall. So if you have perhaps bought one of these items, it is imperative that you bring this back to the store. There are three different USDA recall classifications, class one being the most important, class two showing that there is a mediocre health hazard, a remote probability of some adverse health consequence, and then class three, which is a situation that really does doesn't have any particular chance of an adverse health consequence of you buying or eating a particular good. But a very interesting story here and one that is important to cover because, Trent, you mentioned the breadth of this, over a million pounds of chicken affected overall. Moving on to our second story, and with that, a company that we really have never talked about before, Checkers and Rallies has been sold to another private equity firm for around a reported $525 million, this to Oak Hill Capital Partners. We preface with the fact that we've never talked about this chain, and that's an important fact because this fast food chain should have been on our radar for a number of reasons, one being its size. They actually have a lot of locations here in the United States, and then its popularity and concept have been growing quite rapidly over the last few years in particular. Checkers and Rallies is one of the nation's largest drive-in and drive-through restaurants. It is now one entity, but it used to be two separate banners. Checkers used to be one restaurant concept, Rallies being the other. After the merger in 1999, where Rallies actually bought Checkers, they decided to redesign their locations to model after all of the Checkers locations. They have not remodeled 100% of them, that must be noted, and they do franchise out most of their locations. So it is an interesting concept. It's similar to 
Sonic in a number of ways, and we'll get into that later, but we talked about how Sonic has been moving to a franchise-only model. Currently, they have around 90% franchising within their division in the United States. They want to get that number up to 95. Checkers and Rileys is very similar in that regard. The popular banner now has 844 locations in 29 states and the District of Columbia. The highest concentration of locations is in the Southeast and Midwest. They are headquartered in Tampa, Florida. They have grown, like I said, almost exponentially over the past few years. Over the past three years, they've added 100 restaurants with another 130 in current stages of development. And they see a runway in the next two years of another 250 stores. The company has existed with a relatively similar model than what they had started with in 1985. Trent, a lot to go over here with this acquisition. We can assume as we look at this sale that Sentinel Capital Partners, which is the group that is selling it off to Oak Hill Capital Partners, is making a pretty penny. And actually, Wellspring Capital was the first private equity firm to take Checkers and Rallies private. Up until 2006, the company was publicly traded. Wellspring Capital bought them for an estimated $188 million. So just over 10 years later, the company's value has grown nearly three times due to a number of factors. The first factor is the fact that same-store sales is up, as is individual restaurant profitability. It's reported, and of course we don't have hard and fast numbers simply because it is a privately held company, that the chain has grown individual restaurant profitability by 700 basis points over the last eight years. Overall profit margins have increased a whopping 20% year over year as well. And their CEO, Rick Silva, said that they felt like they had a lot of momentum coming into this deal. But what's more is he mentioned specifically perhaps that Oak Hill Capital Partners may have some more money in their back pocket to help rallies and checkers achieve expansion into that white space that Leighton talked about. Now, Silva, we should mention for his part, has a bunch of experience in the QSR industry, having previously spent 13 years with Burger King. Their current CEO has been with the company now with all three of the different private equity owners. So if anyone is in a position to see certain benefits provided by Oak Hill, it's probably Rick Silva. And it looks as though he'll stay on board during the latest transition in hopes to continue assisting with the growth of the company. Speaking of that growth, that seems to be the primary factor here for the Oak Hill Capital Partners purchase. Similar to the growth plans of many other restaurants that we've talked about on this podcast, they're using the year 2020 as kind of a benchmark year. They're using it as a year around which to structure their strategic goals. The company rolled out a 2020 plan. Sounds kind of similar if you follow retail to the Staples 2020 plan. For rallies and checkers, this includes growing the number of U.S. locations to 1,200. That would represent an over 300 restaurant increase or by percentage a 42% store count increase in the three-year period and that's where Silva believes Oak Hill might be able to help them get because they have perhaps a little bit more cash on hand at least that's what he alluded to along with those 1200 proposed locations they want to see average annual unit revenues come in at around 1.2 million dollars per location which we've talked about unit values of different QSRs and this is slightly less than your average 
larger market, Sonic. When Sonic released their 2020 vision, they want average unit sales in three years to be 1.5 million. So it's not too far off, but still Sonic is pacing rallies and checkers in that particular category. We should also point out that rallies and checkers current annual unit revenues coming at $1 million per location. So they're still lagging behind even the current Sonic unit volume. Sonic, by the way, also has over 3,500 drive-ins as of September of last year. So the runway, on one hand, is not inconceivable for checkers and rallies to reach 1,200 locations. And Rick Silva said that he sees long-term potential of 3,000 locations. The question must be asked, though, Leighton, is there a potential that in areas where checkers and rallies, they don't have their brand well-established, will it be difficult to, for them to compete in areas where Sonic has long been a QSR trend? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I think they're looking at Sonic as kind of a benchmark in that particular industry because this is a niche industry. We're talking about checkers and rallies that they don't have very many sit-in diners. They only have these drive-through locations. And so looking at Sonic, you can see that those over 3,000 locations, 3,557 drive-ins as of September is really a lot in the United States. However, Sonic sees a runway for growth, so why not checkers and rallies? And I think that's a very good question to pose, especially considering the leadership experience that you mentioned with their CEO, Rick Silva. Here you have Rick Silva, who has almost 30 years in the industry overall, and he's really grown the company from just a couple hundred locations to almost a thousand where they're sitting right now. It'll be a thousand around 2018, in fact. So you're looking at Oak Hill that is already looking at positive same store sales. You see a six year streak of annualized positive increases in same store sales there. However, if you look and compare and contrast that to Sonic, you're seeing a little bit of stagnation there. So potentially they've seen something in the market, maybe where they're opening these new locations, something that really differentiates them and brings more customers in overall. Oak Hill maintains that a big reason for these high levels of same store sales is the high level of customer loyalty that checkers and rallies brings to the table. For their part, Oak Hill Capital Partners, you had mentioned that they may have a lot of cash to deal with in terms of really expanding the chains throughout the United States. And right now you see that they have $8.5 billion in assets. So that's a lot of money. Again, not all liquid money. And you can't really see their financials because it is a private equity firm. However, they said they've had over 80 transactions, successful transactions in the last 30 years. So they have a lot of experience. And I dug a little deeper, Trent. They did disclose that they have a presence in multiple core sectors, including retail, industrials, media and communications, and general services. And so two of those really stuck out to me, the retail aspect in, in terms of marketing, and then the media and communications in terms of relaying your message to the customer. And I think that checkers and rallies could really use that going forward because Obviously, bringing in customers is the main part of marketing, and differentiation is important. You never want your product to be commoditized, and that's something that is the number one role for marketing agents across the country is to be different than the others. And so perhaps they can get a leg up on Sonic if they utilize their services in their already gotten industry. So overall, it seems as though they have a little bit of a path to grow, but it is the end strategy that I'm concerned about here. We talk about private equity firms.
firms buying a lot of other franchises up all the time. However, with this one, you got to wonder if they are seeing some value they can unlock, obviously with the things I just mentioned, but perhaps an IPO later on could unlock some value at a higher valuation than they could get by selling to another equity firm. So I think with these two companies, you'd see a track record where they've been selling to private equity firms time and time again. Again, selling at a higher valuation usually comes with having an IPO. Obviously, there's more paperwork to file and you now have to be SEC compliant and have more regular audits done on the accounting side of things. But I am curious where this franchise is going to go and if I'm going to see some in the regions I live because this is a massive franchise, something that's really flown under the radar for you and I. I compare their growth plans to the growth plans of another southeastern United States staple in Bojangles. And listeners of the Food Focus podcast will recall that we discussed them just a few months ago as far as their growth plans. One of the unique things about Bojangles is they only wanted to expand to states adjacent to states they already held holdings in. They didn't want to jump across the country. And I wouldn't be surprised to see checkers and rallies kind of take the same approach to growth because we've seen companies really be bitten by jumping across the country or or trying to make ends meet in an area that might be unfamiliar with their brand. But again, Leighton, you mentioned some of Oak Hill Capital Partners, other holdings out there. And as you mentioned, it seems like they have a little bit of a foothold, at least in the marketing industry. So perhaps they can provide some synergies there with checkers and rallies. But I kind of agree with you in that you don't see a six-year streak of positive comps and sales from one capital group to another without usually an IPO at the end of the rainbow. However, in order to do that, they'll likely have to keep up their streak of positive comps, which is always a difficult thing to do, especially in an increasingly competitive QSR industry to navigate, and particularly as Sonic is continually looking to expand. As you mentioned, there is one other interesting note that I wanted to bring up here. Recall that Sonic is trying out some new dine-in locations in several of their newly open locations have a dining area in them and you kind of wonder in the back of your mind if that's something that checkers and rallies might pursue more of in the future to try and keep up with the joneses on to our third story of the food focus podcast is pi 5 is in our sights again and once more it's for negative news as the company has announced plans to close nine locations in what they call underperforming markets. To add to that, a franchisee is now suing its corporate suitors for misrepresenting the financial performance of existing restaurants in its disclosure statements. This is more bad news for Pi 5, and I can't say that we're totally surprised with the closures considering that their same-store sales have been in the negative double-digit percentage-wise over the last several quarters. Now, Pi 5 has been expanding throughout the United States, albeit not as fast as they had originally projected and not as fast as they were doing in the earlier portion of this decade. Currently, the company has nearly 100 locations overall and around 90 in the United States, although we should note that the website for Pi 5 and their franchisees claims that they have over 450 franchise locations and 31 company markets under development right now. The company over the last week has decided to close nine locations, although has not noted this on their parent company's investor relations page. 
Their company of oversight is Rave Restaurant Group, also known as Rave Pizza. They own Pie 5, but also Pizza Inn Concepts. It does not appear that any of the Pizza Inn restaurants will be closing. Combined between the two concepts, they have over 320 restaurants domestically and internationally. And Leighton, it looks like these locations closing will be largely from the upper Midwest. Yeah, and it's quite interesting because some of these locations or larger markets were these bullish markets. If you look back a couple years ago, the company was very excited about entering these markets. The first market we'll be talking about is from the Chicago area. Seven of those nine locations are in that Chicago area that they're going to be closing. The last two will be from Minnesota. And so Minnesota is an area that they really hadn't talked about previously, but Chicago is definitely one that they were bullish on. They saw a lot of white space going forward in those particular markets. But in spite of not having a formal news release to its shareholders, Rave Pizza did make a statement a little bit after the news released from those closings. A spokeswoman for the company said, we made the very difficult decision, but operationally necessary decision to focus development on other growing markets. The spokeswoman said, it is truly in the best interest of the brand, our franchisees, shareholders, and other team members. And overall, Trent, you look at these continued woes. We really have been ragging a bit hard on Pi 5. They were part of our five worst food-related businesses of 2016. But if you look at their financials, more specifically from the second quarter fiscal 2017 that were released on February 8th, total consolidated revenue for the company, again, this includes both Pizza Inn and Pi 5 Concepts, decreased 3.4% to $14.8 million. This compared to $15.3 million in the second quarter of last year. Pi 5 comparable store sales, and this is the number we were looking at very hard when critiquing them here recently on an episode of The Food Focus. They decreased 17.4% from the same period last year. Those are astonishing figures. And so you see that consolidated revenue did not decline in double-digit figures, but that is because they were increasing the amount of overall locations they have, most namely within the Pi 5 concept. Then if you look at the Pi 5 concept in terms of system-wide retail sales, those only increased 9.7%, again, because of those double-digit store increases, while average weekly sales, and this is a figure that the company looks at more than other pizza QSRs, those weekly sales declined 14.7%, Trent, year over year. So the company did appoint a new CEO, and this was part of a new story we had covered. Scott Crane took the helm on January 9th, and this is one of his main goals, is to increase these average weekly sales through a number of different initiatives, name marketing, he wants a better public image for the company, and the implementation of drive-throughs, either it be in new locations or already existing locations. And so we look at these closings overall, Trent, this is just one half of the story in that they're having a lot of woes this week in the news, this time with a franchisee having a lawsuit against the company. Yeah, we'll talk about that in just a moment. I wanted to remind listeners that Pi 5 still plans to open around 40 locations this year. And what's interesting is one of these locations is in the Chicago area where they're closing all but one of their restaurants in this circumstance. So still lots of plans for expansion as they plan to increase their overall store count by about 
40%. It would be a net increase of 30% when you factor in the closings. But what I found interesting about their exit out of the Chicago market is that the Chicago market is one of few in the United States where Blaze Pizza and Mod Pizza have come in to try and compete with Pi 5. And right now, it looks like Blaze and Mod are winning in those markets. And it's interesting because those three businesses are also competing for franchisees. When we talk about Pi 5 planning to increase by 40 locations during the course of this year, there's this disconnect between them saying they're going to increase by 40 locations during 2017 and that they have over 450 franchise locations under development. It's difficult to have something under development when you're looking at maybe something that may take seven to eight years to finally realize in terms of overall number of locations. And you look at all this bullishness on the Pi 5 page when it comes to franchisees as they boast that they are the fastest growing and that they were the first in their category. Technically, since 2011, they are the fastest growing. But currently now, as you look at the last two years, there are other pizza concepts that are kind of outdoing them. And that's why I think this pending lawsuit is interesting. Carl DeSet, who's a franchisee of seven locations in Indiana, Illinois, and Iowa, is suing for fraud and breach of contract alleging the company, meaning Rave Restaurant Group or Pi5 more specifically, misrepresented important sales information to potential franchisees. And this is something that I remember looking on their franchisee webpage about nine months ago and seeing that they were still very bullish on their concept despite the fact that you had double-digit same-store sales decreases. The set, by the way, owns two Chicago-area locations, which, again, we just talked about some of the soft spots for the company. The lawsuit claims that Rave Restaurant Group was able to manipulate historical sales at Pi 5 locations as well as the average franchisee take. He claims that disclosures did not calculate royalties franchisees pay, nor did it reveal geographic differences in sales or the difficulty generating sales in new markets. He says in the lawsuit, and I quote, intentionally deceived. In addition, the lawsuit said the company inflated sales at a location in suburban Chicago through use of 3,000 unlimited buy one, get one coupons and then sold that location to DeSet, who said he bought the unit based on stated sales. And finally, the lawsuit said that the promotions were done and I quote, to inflate net sales without regard to profitability, making this restaurant appear more attractive this, than it was, end quote. So all of this alleged, and again, I quote, deception from Pi 5, and the lawsuit is still going on, but you might ask, who is this Carl DeSet? What background does he have in franchise ownership? And maybe if these are the first franchises that he's owned, he may not know kind of the tricks of the trade and may not know the ropes all that much. Well, you go back to an article in the Indianapolis Star back in 2015, and there's actually an article about Carl DeSet opening up Pi 5 restaurants in Indianapolis or the Indianapolis metro area. And DeSet, it says, as it gives some background about him, graduated in 1985 from the University of Iowa, working first with Continental Coffee, then opened up two IHOP restaurants as a franchisee in the Chicago area. In 1996, he became a franchisor for Jimmy John's Gourmet Sandwiches, which is kind of before they rose to prominence over the last decade and a half. And he eventually opened up 12 total locations for Jimmy 
Jimmy John's in the Chicago area and then got into Pie 5. So it's not as though this franchisee doesn't know what he's doing. He's had franchises for other food outlets, including the popular Jimmy John's and IHOP. And I think from an outside onlooker, you might say and extrapolate from that that maybe there's a grain of truth to what he's saying. Yeah, potentially. It was something very interesting when you and I were talking before recording about Desset's past and the fact that he does have a lot of experience in the QSR industry. And so you look at an area like Chicago, which the company has said they have had a lot of soft sales, but you cite that there is a lot of competition within those markets. And if you look at the fact that Desset has a longstanding track record, in fact, I looked at his LinkedIn profile and it says he is still a Jimmy John's franchisee, you really have to wonder who is to blame here. Again, these are all just allegations. It's going to have to go through the court system. But for his part, Desset says he wants a jury trial. So he's very serious about going through with the litigation. And overall, he says that he's lost over $500,000 by closing the Rolling Meadows location there with the Pi 5. And then also right now, it says he still owns four franchises in Indiana and one in Iowa. So I'm curious to see if there's going to be any long-term impacts, Trent, because this is a person that if you sue the company overall, you're probably going to have some hardships down the line. And it shows that he is still planning on opening another location in Iowa in May. So I'm curious to see if any of this has any effect on his long-term plans to open continued high five locations he also seeks putative damages again this is according to court documents and payment for the attorney's fees obviously the attorney fees are going to be very expensive in something like this when you're taking a corporate suitor to court Rave Pizza has filed to have the lawsuit dismissed, which is usually the first course of action here. Initially, the company declined to comment, citing pending litigation practices. Since then, however, I found it very interesting. They are actually putting the blame on Deset, basically saying that he was not able to perform well as a franchisee. They said, and I quote, apparently unhappy with the results he has achieved, Deset and his wholly owned corporations have filed suit against Pi 5 Pizza Company. This is interesting because here you have a franchisor that's trying to sell themselves basically to successful franchisees in certain areas. And if you're not being able to come through on the financial success part of the business and prove out long-term viability, it's not going to be a good look for the company. However, if you look at the concept overall, many companies have proven the concept. We talk about Mod Pizza, but then also you have Pizzeria Locale, which is a Chipotle subsidiary that has actually done quite well despite their overall slowing and growth. But despite blaming the franchisee for his ability to operate, shareholders have not taken a liking to the company over the past two months. And this is reciprocated in the share price trend. Shares of Rave Restaurant Group are down nearly 30% since the end of January, close to being down nearly 60% for the trailing 52-week period, currently trading just around $2 a share. To put that in perspective, even though we don't talk about finance a lot, shares of the company were trading as high as $15 a share just two years ago when Pi5 was really getting momentum. Typically, you see a company come along and it was really looked at as a pizza QSR disruptor. This is what really started to gain momentum just two years ago, even though Pi5 had existed, the concept overall since 2011.
And it's funny that they cite in this statement that DeSette was unhappy with the results that he has achieved. I would be willing to argue that there are probably quite a few franchisees that are unhappy with the results that they've had from Pi 5, at least over the course of the last year. Leighton talked about some of the horrendous sales numbers, or at least the trending of sales numbers, and how they have struggled against some of these other upstarts in the same category. And you know, if you're a rave restaurant group, you look at Pi 5 and it seems like it's been nothing but trouble over the past couple of years. They've had difficulty growing as quickly as they've wanted. And I'm anxious to see, for one, whether they're actually able to add the 40 new locations they've stated during the course of the next year. But also, for two, if they achieve long-term anything even close to the 450 franchise locations that they boast that they have in development. This is a long road forward for a company that right now is struggling, and I'm sure Leighton and I will anxiously await the next quarter's results to see if their same restaurant sales continue to fall. Well, we move on to the last main story as we do have a bonus story for this episode of The Food Focus. The main story includes McDonald's as they've quietly rolled out Frozen Coke to its locations after testing it in September of 2016. Frozen Coke has been an offering for some time now in some international markets in Australia, New Zealand, and Thailand, among other places. It was announced in September that it would be trialed in the United States in just a select few markets. We go through the testing of this frozen Coke. Testing was actually done in Wichita, Kansas, which is interesting because it's sort of a mid-sized market with a metro population of about 450,000 people. So a fairly small market there in the Midwest. Wichita, Kansas is interesting because along with Columbus, Ohio and Omaha, Nebraska, these locations in the Midwest are pretty traditional test markets for QSRs because of their demographic mix. So I had cited the 450,000 population density in Wichita, Kansas, but it is a very diverse mix of people. So initially the test included Coke, Wild Cherry Fanta, and Blue Raspberry Fanta. These drinks are a traditional type of soda slush, so you can think of it as a typical carbonated drink similar to that of an Icy or a Slurpee that you might get at a 7-Eleven. This actually wasn't the first time McDonald's has tinkered with frozen beverages. They've had several limited time offerings there in the past, as some of our listeners may be aware of. They had some actual non-carbonated beverages as well, including frozen lemonade and cherry berry chiller in the past. They saw this widespread rollout of different LTOs back in March of 2013. And now, Trent, it looks as though the company has found success because they plan on rolling this out to other franchisees and other markets inside the United States. This is an interesting circumstance because usually McDonald's is very quick through press releases or uh, through blog posts and that type of thing to introduce a concept such as this. But it seems as though the rollout of frozen Coke has actually begun not from corporate on down, but through franchisees as it begins to spread throughout the Midwest. There's been sightings of frozen Coke at different McDonald's restaurants throughout the Midwest, but nothing on their website about a nationwide rollout. And I find this fascinating is that this addition of frozen Coke at many franchisees in the Midwest hasn't been reflected on their nationwide online menu, nor has it shown up in their online nutrition facts section, which is another typical indicator of rollout out a new product nationwide. But when you look at the time of year, here we're at the end of March. This is exactly when, in the past, just four years ago, McDonald's had widespread rollouts of non-carbonated drinks 
as slushes, like frozen lemonades, Leighton mentioned their cherry berry chiller. They came out almost the exact same time in late March of 2013. So it wouldn't be surprising to either see them roll this out on a permanent basis beginning in late March, or at least on a limited time only basis beginning in late March. So there's some different theories here behind the frozen Coke rollout. The first theory is that they're still in test stages and they're now expanding their tests to other markets operated by other franchisees. The second theory is that they're allowing franchisees to upgrade the equipment at their leisure. Remember, these machines can be expensive to purchase and operate, and McDonald's in particular has been at odds with franchisees over upgrades in the past year. As you'll probably recall, a lot of kerfuffle over All Day Breakfast 1.0 and All Day Breakfast 2.0, both in terms of staffing and obviously in terms of space in the kitchen. Many franchisees weren't happy with those changes, and so perhaps Perhaps McDonald's is loath to try and push something else on franchisees for which they may have to buy equipment. And the final theory is that perhaps they're getting ready to spring this on the entire country as a whole, but a select few markets have gotten a lead out on it. But again, no indication from McDonald's website, their investor relations page, or their blog. I want to talk very quickly about some of the benefits and also the problems that come from frozen drinks as a whole. Now, obviously, frozen drinks do provide some benefits to convenience stores in particular, but also quick service restaurants as far as driving the margins are concerned. Otherwise, of course, they wouldn't be offered at all. For one, frozen drink machines often incorporate a fair amount of air and frozen water becomes larger than liquid water anyway. So 16 ounce of frozen drink, a frozen Coke or an icy, let's say, may only take about 12 ounces of liquid. So it means higher margins on that front. But also price points are typically higher on frozen beverages. If you look at another QSR and Taco Bell, they charge at regular price around $1.99 for a 16 ounce version of their Mountain Dew freezes. So essentially the same ingredients there as fountain drinks, but they're charging nearly twice as much. So again, this means higher margins. The overarching concept there is that the markup percentage is typically much higher on frozen drinks on average. However, the negatives here, these machines do require a fair amount of electricity to run. So you do have higher utility costs, even though it just may be a slight tick up for your average McDonald's restaurant, you will have higher energy costs or utility costs in the end. Also, these machines break frequently and they require a qualified individual to repair them, which can take days or sometimes even weeks or months if you're unlucky enough. And unless McDonald's has a dedicated service team member attending to them, which can also cost money, this may lead to frequent outages in the future in terms of long-term capabilities of producing the frozen Cokes and other drinks at their locations. Much like McDonald's experienced in their soft-serve machines, and it was announced earlier this week that McDonald's was rolling out new McFlurry machines and new soft-serve machines out to some of their franchisees. And this way, it would kind of reduce maintenance needed on some of the older machines because those are down quite a bit, those older soft serve machines. And finally, one thing you have to think about when you're selling frozen beverages like this is you have steep seasonal swings. We just talked about this last week with Jamba Juice and the smoothie industry. 
So you have a seasonal swing, obviously, when it gets to summer, your sales go up. When it gets to winter, especially in your colder markets, your more northern markets in the U.S., your sales go down of your frozen drinks, at least generally. Also, not only do they have to worry about outages of the machine, but also a run on the beverages. So during the summer, when you have a lot of customers coming in, especially in warmer climates where it's 90 or 100 degrees outside, you have a number of people trying to get a frozen beverage, a frozen Coke, a frozen Fanta, what have you. If you get a run on that particular product, it can be very difficult to restock that product since the containers only hold so much at one period in time. And once they're out and you have to replace the liquid in there. It can take a little bit for that liquid to get up to temperature. I think we've all experienced going into a convenience store or a different QSR and having, you know, maybe an icy machine or a slush machine, something like that, be out of product because it's got the product in there. It's just not up to temperature yet. A couple of final aspects I want to talk about in regards to this story and McDonald's in particular is the fact that McDonald's has been looked at in the past as someone who's trying to take market share from the likes of Starbucks with all their different drink offerings and the like. And then also you mentioned the summertime, Trent. They have a lot of $1 drink specials in a lot of different markets throughout the summertime to try to get those people away from convenience stores. So they're trying to take market share from a number of different competitors but then also, they have competitors too, Trent. So when they roll things like this out, these one-time offerings or these larger offerings, like these frozen Cokes, you have to take into account that other competitors have already existed in this space. And if we go down the list, we can see that Burger King has long boasted a partnership with Icy to sell Coke Icy's and also typically second or third flavors as well. They actually tried to piggyback off the success from the resurrected Surge brand with a frozen, frozen Surge back in November 2015. 15. And then a major component of Sonic's beverage success, something we've talked about a lot here. We had actually mentioned Sonic in this podcast, but there are different drink offerings, those flavor offerings that you see, and they often in times involve slushies. If you look at another competitor in Taco Bell in September of 2013, they rolled out a series of Mountain Dew freezies featuring both the proprietary Baja Blast flavor that we have actually mentioned on this podcast and multiple Mountain Dew jumpstart iterations. More recently, Taco Bell has actually capitalized on non-carbonated freezies as well with Starburst and Airhead flavors creeping into their lineup. And then we look at other competitors that really haven't been into this foray. We talk about Wendy's really not having anything other than those dairy products like the Frosty and things of that nature. And then others that really haven't participated too much in this industry or this niche within the industry are Jack in the Box, Hardee's, and Carl's Jr. Well, we want to get to one final story on the Food Focus podcast because literally about 20 minutes after we started recording this week, news broke that Darden Restaurants had offered $700 million in cash to the private equity firms L. Catterton and Oak Investment Partners to purchase Cheddar's, which is another casual dining brand that would go into their portfolio. This is a very interesting sale, and, and Leighton, just our brief reaction to it, honestly, is $780 million seems pretty slim for a restaurant that's showcased a lot of success and the ability to expand in a short amount of time. They have 165 locations already, and they've expanded by leaps and bounds in the last decade. 
Yeah. If you look at the recent financials of the operator, you can see that revenue is ticking up, but albeit slightly. So you and I were in a little bit of a disagreement too. in the fact that anytime something like this happens, everyone always talks about those buzzwords, talking about synergies, economies of scale. And if you look at Darden restaurants and how they've operated over the years, they've really simplified their processes, not only with the kitchens in the back, but then also where they're getting the products, those food inputs, the sourcing of these things. They're all going to be efficient over time, therefore reducing costs in the long run or those average costs for these particular meals. But if you look at Cheddar's, they're trying to differentiate themselves by being a scratch kitchen, by making things by hand and typically they try to get a lot of things in preparation before they even open on a daily basis so they do operate a little differently and where you and I were maybe looking at things a little differently was how are they going to operate going forward are they really going to be trying to unlock value I'm and by that I mean Darden restaurants going to unlock value from Cheddar's by implementing some of those best practices perhaps they could get some higher margins squeeze those margins out of the Cheddar's brand but you had mentioned a very good point and that is with their marketing trend and that the Darden restaurant has a very large platform to work with and Cheddar's really isn't that popularized it's not really well known in a lot of larger markets so I think they could grow the brand and in by doing so grow the awareness of Cheddar's overall it's funny you and I have been texting about this purchase pretty much since we started recording the podcast but I think another way that I'm looking at it is in terms of average unit sales obviously Darden sees something that's pretty consistent with their other restaurants in average unit sales the last numbers that we have from Cheddar's Scratch Kitchen the average unit sales look to be about 4.2 million dollars per location and this is relatively consistent with what Olive Garden let's say has seen over the past several years you see their average unit sales jumping around but usually mid 4 million range is where Olive Garden is sitting anywhere between 4.4 million and 4.6 million on average so it does seem to be right in their wheelhouse and then as I was thinking about it and kind of doing some poking around I, I remembered that Kelly Baltus from Darden Restaurants had served as CEO of Cheddar's now he is not there anymore he's actually serving as CEO of a barbecue franchisee their current CEO has experience at Uno Restaurant Hold Corporation, but not Darden Brands. Their current CEO is Ian Baines. That's his name. But interesting thing that I recall reading earlier this year, which is that Cheddar's had actually bought back a number of their franchise locations. And you had to wonder, now looking back with hindsight, if that was to try and position themselves so that Darden could actually purchase the chain. Darden prefers corporate-owned restaurants or company-owned restaurants. They don't franchise a lot of their restaurants. And currently, Chatters, I believe the mix is around 15 to 20% franchise locations to corporate-owned locations. But they did purchase back a number of their franchisees' locations, which is rare in an era we're seeing more and more across all segments of the food industry, corporations and companies beginning to sell off some of those locations to franchisees. Cheddar's did the exact opposite, and perhaps it was getting ready for this purchase. 
Yeah, you have some very good insight there, Trent. And I would agree they really didn't like having to franchise out too terribly much, even if they were trying to position themselves to be sold in the long run. I really compared them. The nerd in me actually looked on their franchising website about three to four years ago, and their model is very specific. You have to have a, an X amount of years experience within the QSR industry or the restaurant industry. They're very similar to that of Texas Roadhouse. They're very careful with who they franchise out to. It's not an operation similar to McDonald's where you really just have to have the liquidity and cash on hand in order to participate. They were very careful of who they put in charge. And the same thing went for their hiring decisions. You talk about the breadth of experience a lot of the managers at those individual locations had to have in order to run those restaurants. It was a high level. And so you look at this kind of operation and this really suited them well in the long run because if you're coming in and trying to procure an already functioning restaurant group, you're really wanting to look at how they do on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think Cheddar's for their part was operating at a very high level. As I look back at the news release at the beginning of the year, it was Greer Companies that actually sold 44 franchises back to Cheddar's Scratch Kitchen, which put the number at 139 out of the 164 restaurants for Cheddar's being company or corporate owned as compared to just 25 franchisees. So the final numbers there for our listeners. I'm excited to see some of these numbers from Cheddar's. If they're going to be publicly traded, we should mention also to our listeners that according to several around the deal, this is not expected to be finalized until the fourth quarter of this fiscal year. Well, we reach the final segment on the Food Focus podcast where each Leighton and I tell you about one product that's new to the world of food that we tried over the last week. And we begin with Leighton. Well, my product is extremely boring, but it's something I've been addicted to for the entirety of my life. And that is peanut butter. This isn't just normal peanut butter, though. It is all natural. I tend to look at things that are all natural or organic. Skippy all natural peanut butter with honey. This was the creamy version. And if you look at the ingredients, Trent, this is something that is very simplistic. We're talking about peanut butter spread being the first one, and then salt, and then sugar and honey being the basic ingredients for this particular product. So there's no hydrogenated or partially hydrogenated oils that you would typically see with a conventional peanut butter. But something that caught my eye, and this ties into a story we covered a while ago, one of our first food focused podcasts, and the fact that Nutella is petitioning the FDA to reduce their serving size quantity from two tablespoons to one tablespoon. And if you look at the serving size quantity on this jar, Trent, it says two tablespoons. And part of the argument that Nutella's parent company was making was we want to be more like peanut butter and that we are a toast spread. Well, I'll tell you what, this is the primary use for this peanut butter. I use the Dave's bread that I've covered also on this podcast to put this on. And I got to say, I, I use a bit more than two tablespoons. So I'm taking in more than the 16 grams of fat that it says it has per serving. But for that, you see that the sugar content, despite it being the fourth ingredient on its ingredient list, there's only five grams of sugar. So it's not that bad if you're really looking at the sugars, thinking there's some maybe some negative inflammatory properties that are brought about by sugars. You're not really going to be affected by that. And then also, if you look at the cholesterol, that is zero. And then the sodium is very minimal too at 140 milligrams. So not a lot of salt or sugar, despite being listed on the ingredient label. And the honey taste is there. It's not too strong, but I'll tell you now I'm addicted to this and I can no longer go back to the conventional creamy peanut butter without honey. 
Well, from peanut butter to beer, and <laughs> that's where I went for mine. Now, my product that I tried isn't new to the world of food, but its distribution is new, and that's really the differentiator here. And the brewing company that I want to discuss on today's podcast is Core Brewing Company out of Northwest Arkansas, actually out of Springdale, Arkansas, very close to Bentonville or the Walmart corporate headquarters. Now, up until recently, it used to be that their beer was only available in Northwest Arkansas, either through their pub locations or through stores in Northwest Arkansas. But now they're beginning distribution outside of Arkansas. And so I took it upon myself to try the Core ESB, which is one of their signature varieties. They've been brewing it for over 20 years. And although it is an ESB, I was expecting something that was a little more hop forward than what I got. Instead, I got a lot of caramel, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It was a smooth, sessionable beer which some ESBs kind of struggle with in terms of sessionability because they tend towards the syrupy nature. They tend to be a little bit heavier. ABV sat at about 6%. IBUs 31 there, so not the hoppiest ale you will ever have, but still a very sessionable beer. And I'm looking forward to more beers from Core Brewing Company as they begin to be available on a more widespread basis. And they're one of the smaller regional breweries that we often talk about competing with some of the legacy craft brewers like Boston Beer Company and Sierra Nevada on this podcast. And although Sierra Nevada is kind of a standard bearer in this area, and in terms of ESBs, you think of Red Hook as being one of the original ESBs to really achieve nationwide prominence, I really did enjoy my first offering from Core Brewing Company. That'll do it for us here on the Food Focus Podcast for Leighton. I'm Trent saying so long until next week. Later on this week, we've got our Retail Focus Podcast coming right up in which we discuss the delay of the Amazon Go project and what it potentially means for Amazon's brick-and-mortar presence. Be sure and tune in then. Until then, visit us on Twitter at The Food Focus. This has been the Food Focus Podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Thank you.